Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. I took a bit of a break after working through the Golden Sparrow. If you missed that, certainly invite you to take a listen through the whole journey, have a bit of a mysterious trip, and you'll get a chance to hear the premiere recording of The Golden Sparrow, the piece that was at the center of the escape room. But with that finished, and a little bit of a break behind me, uh, where I was working on my next set of recordings and releases and some technology elements, which I'll be announcing in coming weeks uh, to share with you, I want to get back to interviews. And I had the privilege of speaking with Liana Premiani in September. She's a composer and, and film composer as well who has conducted. And we share a lot of similar background in our training, working as conductors of orchestras in traditional concert music, but then also crossing over to other forms. We had about an hour to speak, and unfortunately, I had some technical problems. So after the fact, I'm going to be putting my prompting questions in. But I'm going to let Leanna share about herself in her own words. And I do invite you to take a look at Leanna Premiani. Net, her website, and it goes to both her film work and her concert music as well. A really interesting composer who's made the journey from orchestral sounds in the traditional palette of the orchestra into intriguing uses of electronic music, and we touch on all these topics. So I do hope you enjoy my conversation. Leanna, welcome to the program. Why don't you start and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, currently, I'm a concert composer as well as uh, I write for film and television, and I also create electronic music under the moniker Anasia. We're going to get a chance to talk a little bit more about the electronic elements of your music making. But first, uh, I'm curious, have you always been involved in composition? No. <laughs> um, I was a conductor. First, I studied uh, flute and piano uh, most of my growing up. And then I uh, went to school for um, because I really wanted to be a uh, conductor. And then um, I got out into the real world, and it was um, really hard slog at the time. This was probably mid late nineties. Um, just you know, it, we hadn't there hadn't been a lot of acceptance really of, of women on the podium. And um, I was doing a, a conductor's workshop um, in Europe with um, a conductor composer named uh, Peter Utbush. And he's like, you know, you really, the way you talk to an orchestra, you really need to think about composing. I thought, I could never do that. What are you talking about? So what did you do? In true academic fashion. I was like, well, I can't do this on my own, right? God forbid. So I'll go get a degree. So I ended up going to uh, UCLA and I was studying with a man named Paul Shihara, who is also not only just a great composer and a great guy, but he also does um, film and TV as well. And he was writing in the 70s and the 80s before computers. So he would get out his calculator and do the time code and like the whole thing. And he's just such a great composer. And we were in class or something. He's like, you should think about writing for film and television. I'm like, I could never do write for media. What are you talking about? And so it was because of him that I even started to pursue film and uh, TV. Film and TV or, or media composition can be really different than writing for the concert stage. Uh, tell me about that. 
I felt a little bit like Jekyll and Hyde because I was writing one way for you know my concert music and another way for film and TV. And I don't think my voice was really, it wasn't me that, that was coming out. I was trying to be something I wasn't. If I'm really gonna pursue it, I have to find a way to just have a voice that will work within both film and television and, and the concert stage. For the past seven years has been about taking my interests and combining them into one kind of focused voice. Sometimes media music and concert music, particularly orchestral concert music, can be really different. How did you blend them? I don't write like super thorny music. I've tried to have that come out of me. It does not. I've also tried to write kind of rom-com music and that doesn't come out of me either. So I know that the projects that I work on for, you know, for media have always been on the darker side, thriller, drama, horror, sci-fi, quirky, but dark. That's kind of where my, my music fits into those projects. And I think to try to be the jack of all trades, at least for me, just didn't work. Well, that gives us a sense of your media music. So how does that connect to your concert music? I would say that it is, it's not necessarily tonal, but it's not super thorny. I'm a much happier person when I compose that way. And I feel like myself as a musician and an artist actually comes through in a more earnest and truthful way. Because when I now present something, I'm not second guessing. As an artist, it's really critical to find your authentic voice. And it sounds like that's helped you. They're, they know what they're going to get when, I'm, when they hire me or when they uh, commission me. Uh, that's a good point that those who want your music can learn to understand your artistic brand. And that helps them know what to expect when you bring a new work. Some of my listeners may not be familiar with the process of commissioning, but it's where a performer will pay a composer to create some new music. And so you mentioned commissions. Uh, any recent activity you'd like to share? I recently just won the Toolman Commission. And the neat thing about that competition is that the participating organization chooses the composer. So I was chosen by an organization called the River Oaks chamber orchestra in Houston. And they are just doing unbelievable work. They're just, you know, they're breaking the mold on the tradition of, you know, the chamber orchestra and chamber music and what does it mean to present classical music. And so they're turning that on its head. And I think uh, the simpatico of my voice and what they're doing was a really good fit. Congratulations on that success. It sounds like your journey from performer as conductor through to a composer with a united voice in the media and concert spheres is bringing success and you're able to share your music. For me, it's about me solidifying my voice and then making sure that that voice fits, you know, finding those organizations, organizations and projects and artists that also Make, that also make that a good fit. You have an active career developing music, both for the concert stage and for media. Tell me a bit about some of the differences that you encounter between those two worlds and why the fusion of them in your own case is so interesting. 
Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I feel that um, musicians come from two categories, at least in the U.S. I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but for us, you either take piano lessons and you play Chopin and you do a very, you have a teacher, you play in band, you play in orchestra, you play the piano. And then if you're lucky, you get into college to be a musician and that means more study and it's a very rigorous academic training in the European tradition. So you there's either that path or there's a I'm not going to take any lessons, man. It's all about rock and roll. Let's go. And then you do the rock path. And you might have a guitar teacher or a drum teacher, but it's not, it's a, there's, there's not the rigor that goes with the classical study. The typical kind of rock band, I, I'm going to start a band in my garage. They're not the cats who are taking the AP music theory test that's just not who they are so it's either one or the other and it's fascinating because and it bugs me because there are a lot of people who call themselves composers who don't read music or don't really understand the craft of composition or they don't necessarily have a technique of composition and those guys end up hiring the people who were trained who have all of that that can facilitate their musical idea. And just going back post-World War II up until maybe the 90s when electronics started to become more uh, prevalent, everybody came from a very traditional, they had compositional chops and they had craft and they had technique. Um, even if they were interested in electronics, everybody, you know, did some kind of study somewhere, even if, you know, they were in a band like, uh, what's his name? James Newton Howard. He was, he went to USC. Like he's a trained pianist and he's a trained composer, but he just happened to be in Toto. But he still came from that background, like Jerry Goldsmith, obviously, and, you know, all those cats before him. But then, you know, then you had this kind of range and, you know, the transition from traditional to electronic that still had it. And then all of a sudden, when it became, you know, garage band and everybody could call themselves a composer, then it was like, oh, look, I write for orchestra. Look, here's my violin sound. Isn't that neat? So the use of traditional orchestral materials became easier because of technology, but it didn't necessarily come along with the training that had developed around those techniques. That is my pet peeve. So a lot of people aren't, and they think that they know enough about music to be successful. And then here are the, the trained, work your butt off in conservatory. To top that off, like a lot of classical composers want to write for film, but they're intimidated because of the technology and everything that you have to learn and the enormous investment that you have to have in gear and the blah, 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 blah to keep that up. So there, you know, the rock guys might be intimidated by the classical guys, but the classical guys are as intimidated by those guys because they just didn't, you know, that's not the way they grew up or were trained. So it's, you know, so there are very, there are very super successful people in the middle, but the vast majority are either or. So you've seen this firsthand with some of your colleagues. I got my uh, DMA from USC and 
you know, my pals who were, we were in the comp program together and it's like, oh man, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I don't have that kind of gear. I don't write that kind of, and it's like, it's not hard, you guys, you just have to go out, you know, you have to get started. I don't know what else to say. And I know a lot of classical composers who are, you know, um, older than us. And, you know, they always wanted to write for film, but they are completely stymied by the technology. And so they're mad that they don't get the film jobs. And then the film guys are mad that they don't win the Pulitzer Prizes. Right? So it's like everybody's mad. Certainly every craft has its uh, grass is greener. And this is one I've observed with colleagues of my own, the desire for the recognition that comes from media music, which is really more pervasively heard, more widely heard and more widely embraced than concert music. But concert music still holds a certain prestige because of the academic gravity that you mentioned, the training and the hurdle, the educational hurdle that's associated with it. It's not really new, though. There are plenty of illustrations in times past. In fact, what comes to mind is George Gershwin and Arnold Schoenberg, who each coveted the fame, the recognition that the other had received. Gershwin, of course, being a creator of immensely popular songs, and Schoenberg, a celebrated composer and innovator in Europe. They played tennis together. Yeah, the way music history uh, weaves together is sometimes really unexpected. I want to pivot a little bit and learn more about how it was that you first encountered the orchestral tradition, quote, classical music, and how you knew that this was going to be a defining part of your life. I had an aunt who, um, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. She had uh, season tickets to the San Francisco Opera. She went every weekend and she had tickets for like 50 years. And she thought it would be a good idea to take me to the opera because I was taking piano lessons. And I was little, like five, I mean, little. So she decides to take me. And so we drive and we have to get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to, you know, San Francisco and we go and then we have lunch across the street from the thing. And she has a couple of highballs like vodka gimlets. That was her drink. So she had a couple of vodka gimlets. It's like 11 o'clock. So she, she pounds those down and then we walk to the opera house, which is right there. And I'm, we're all dressed up and everyone's good. It's always Sunday afternoon. They always have a mat. At least they did. Um, so then we would go up to, because also, I don't know what it is now, but back then, uh, the longevity of your season ticket, how long you were a season ticket holder, depended on where you sat. So the longer you were a season ticket holder, the better seats that you got. So by now, I, she had killer seats, and she was not going to give them up for me. So she wasn't going to sell her seat so we could sit together. like. No way. So we met her friends at the bar on the upper level, like a box, whatever. And she had another drink, of course, with her pals. And so she's like, and the bell goes off. She's like, okay, honey, here's your ticket. There's a man in green in a jacket. Anybody in green, just ask them where to sit, seat you and they'll seat you. Okay. And then she goes back to her friends and I'm five. And I was like, uh, Okay, so we're in this little girl with this ticket, like go down. 
and I find a guy in green. It's like, can you help me find my seat? So he takes me and I'm like, I'm in the crap seats in the back of the orchestra. I mean, it's still lovely, but. Um, so I'm sitting there and this businessman is like sitting next to me and he's like, I can't believe I'm sitting here next to this five-year-old unaccompanied minor. Like what the hell? Like he was not happy. And he had, and he had uh, opera glasses and he kept, and I kept like looking at him longingly. He was like, kid, you want my glasses? I was like, yes, please. And I remember my first, the reason I even bring this up is because it apparently was a surprise that Pavarotti was singing Bohème. She thought Bohème would be great opera. And it just happened that he was filling in that, like they flew him in, I want to say it was 83 or 4, 84. And it was like unbelievable. And so I just remember everybody else was like working to sing, right? Like that was my impression. Like it was, it was a big house. They didn't have mics then, like it was a thing. And then all he did was stand there and literally just open his mouth. And this little, it almost blew you back. Just the sound of that. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It was God's gift. like pow and it was unbelievable and i just i remembered i'm still getting chills now i remember that and i remember they and i don't remember who was singing with him she was as famous she was famous at the time but i i it, it slips me but um i remember thinking i was five i remember thinking yeah that's really neat i'd love to sing but i don't know if i want to like be that fat. So what's that guy doing in there? That looks good. He looks in charge. I want to do that. That's how that came about. It's a long, stupid story for a very simple answer. But that's what kind of clicked for me. And then I was always into opera. And later I was a, and I've always been an opera conductor in some form or another. And then I was um, uh, conducted ballet as well. But I like being in the pit. I don't like to be on stage to perform. That's not something, one of the reasons too why I like to conduct is because my back was to the audience. But I have a little bit of a phobia uh, performing and I never enjoyed it. So it's nice to either have your back to the audience or just to be in the pit kind of controlling everything. That's what I like. And it's even better being a composer because you just show up and you take a bow and you go to rehearsal and you say faster or slower. You say, check that note, oboe, trumpet. Right, okay, great. Good job, good luck. So it was the power of hearing Pavarotti live really stuck with you. It sounds like it was a transformational moment, but that also connected you to the world of the orchestra in the pit. And those performances, particularly with a personality like Pavarotti, could be really quite dazzling. I had a similar experience. It was later when I was in university. I had the privilege of seeing Turandot at the Met in the student seats, which are not great seats, but the Zeffirelli staging of it was absolutely eye-popping. And opera on the stage is really a spectacle. Oh, fabulous. So that was a defining moment for you, but growing up when you did, you would have been surrounded by popular music and, and the bands uh, that you talked a bit about earlier. Did you ever participate in popular music forms as well? Were you ever? I had a brief stint like in middle school, high school, where I was 
the chick in the band and that didn't last very long because these guys were a bunch of jerks. But um, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like, you either did this or you did that. These millennials and these, you know, what are they, Gen Z, what are they being called? Like, they don't have those barriers that we did. So I think that's great. But I think, and to their detriment, I think that they don't see a need for the training. And I think even more so you need the training because if not, it's just, you know, music is just wallpaper and it meanders. The training gives you direction. So we talked a bit about how the classical tradition captured your imagination and your journey into the training. Uh, I'd like to dive a little deeper into your transition from being a conductor to being a composer in a little more depth. Yeah, for me, I'm, I made the transition because when I was actively conducting, um, I would look at a score and I wanted to create more of a sound. And what I mean by that is like why in a Beethoven symphony or let's be more, let's say, let's talk about Strauss tone poem. Why does a violinist or a string player have to play in the same position, in the same part of the bow throughout a tone poem. Strauss and Debussy and Beethoven and blah, 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 they did not put in their scores like molto sultasto, play at the front. You know, they didn't give all these create these instructions that a lot of composers now are expected to give. They weren't, you know, when they said, hit a bass drum or when you hit something, they didn't say with what kind of mallet and, and you know, a medium felt or a hard block or a hard yarn or, a, right? All those kinds of directions to create the sound of a score did not exist. So for you as a conductor, those are many of the decisions you would make in order to interpret the music. Those decisions have to be made by the performer since the composer hasn't specified them. I was like, okay, in this part, obviously it's piano, string players. I know it's not marked, but I want a molto, like molto sultasto, not just like kind of put your bow close to the, but really get, really get it over there. Let's make this fortissimo and this pianissimo that's a sound like then how does that work with the trumpet right like what is that what is that sound is he only going to make the one kind of big strauss sound or is the brass section sensitive enough that they can do things to mimic the sound that they're getting back from their colleagues in other sections of the orchestra so there's all of these things that a conductor can do to kind of help paint sound or to create a sound. And I always got a lot of, um, I think it's different now, but I, if I had been a guy and done that, I'll just be honest. I'd, I think I, you know, it would have been a different story, but it always got a lot of pushback. But in the end, when it happened, it was like, it was a really magical sound, which is why Peter said to me, you really need to compose because you just think about music differently. It sounds like you had a really unique approach to bringing 
the sound of the orchestra together as a conductor. So why did composition uh, address that need or that desire for these sounds differently? Why are you going to go hear another Beethoven symphony or another Mozart symphony or another Strauss tompom by, you know, the podunk community orchestra or, you know, kind of a B orchestra when you can turn on London Symphony or you can live stream the Berlin Philharmonic or, you know, or you can, or in LA, like, why would you go to one of these other orchestras when you can just go to the LA Philharmonic, which is arguably the best orchestra in the world? What's the point? It's to hear something. You've got to you've got to do something with that sound to make it compelling to have people come to your concerts. So for me, it's about my intro into or wanting to compose is about creating the sound that I was never able to get as a conductor. How do you do that as a composer differently than you were able to do it as a conductor? It sounds like you felt limited as a conductor in your ability to get the sound you were looking for. I write molto soltasto for a reason with the piccolo in the low part of the register with maybe something, you know, you just want to create, it's not just notes, it's not just about, you know, creating what we call algen music, which is super complicated music for your eyes and you look at the page and it's black. There has to be a reason for the sound and the notes and everything coming together. Like, what are you doing to create a sound? And that's one of the reasons why I use um, electronics is to just, um, I treat it like an orchestral instrument and um, I try to create sounds that A, blend with the orchestra, but B, can't be recreated by the orchestra, which is why I incorporate electronics in most of my um, concert music. And I think it's very effective. That's a great segue to talking about your work as a composer. One of the aspects of your music that stuck out to me is exactly that use of the electronic idioms, an electronic toolkit, with the traditional orchestra. I'd love to know a little bit more. How do you approach fusing these two together? I have a piece that's called Shadow Banks. It's a big kind of a, it's a big tone poem. I write tone poems, so I'm very um, inspired by the likes of Symphony Fantastique and Liszt and Strauss. And, you know, I was writing this and I, you know, I've got a drum set in it and it's super cool. And I do some really great thing. I do some fun things or what I think is really cool, like a bass clarinet and contrabassoon, like with some interesting hi-hat and, you know, just different things. And I just felt like I felt myself stymied and against a uh, creative wall because I just, there was a sound that I was trying to get and what I was getting was cool, but it just, I, I don't know, so, something was missing. And then I was writing music for sound design for media projects. And I was always stymied because I never had a traditional instrument. And at the time, you know, 10 years ago, at least the instruments I had, I felt never sounded great. But see, I come from being a conductor and I know what it sounds like, what an orchestra sounds like. I know what a flute's supposed to sound like. I know what a violin's supposed to sound like. I know what a cello section's supposed to, right? Like, I know what that's supposed to sound like. And I never 
thought I could get it with electronics. So instead of going, adding those electronic instruments into my media, which is what most people, normal thinking people would do, I added the media to the concert works. So this really unlocked some new creative direction for you. It's like adding another instrument. It makes you think about all the other instruments around it differently. It's intriguing to me that you incorporated these media or electronic elements, but treated them or considered them just like another instrument. If you think about a, a string quartet, right? It has a sound, but you put a piano in it. All of a sudden things change and expand and it's just one instrument but you can do so many things with it and that's how I feel about electronics when I write especially for orchestra and I would call myself an orchestra composer. So you've brought this electronic element but you still really see yourself as writing for the orchestra or no? I love writing for orchestra that's like my love and I think my my talent and ability and my previous experience as a conductor, knowing all that repertoire really comes into play best when I'm, when I'm working with an orchestra. In my experience, one of the challenges with some pieces that I've heard, and in fact, I think your work is noteworthy that it isn't like this, but the sterility of digital sounds and mechanically produced sounds through a computer sometimes do not blend well with the natural vibrating wood and string and, and bone of the traditional orchestral instrument. So tell us a little bit more about how you bring the electronic sounds, which could seem very alien to the sound of the orchestra, and weave them together. Right. You know, it's interesting because um, where the orchestra sits in the relation of this tonal spectrum, um, you know, you have to be very specific as to where you put the electronics, which is why you have to treat it like another instrument. If you are thinking about where a flute sits and how a flute will sound against a viola section, and is that going to cut? And how are you going to write so that they both show through? Just like any other orchestra composer or instrument that you think about. So if I'm going to write a bass line that is going to be high and fast on a, a contrabass and they're going crazy and you know they're not going to get a lot of sound out of that instrument. I'm not going to blow a trumpet at fortissimo because these poor guys are going to be there doing this and everyone's going to be like, what are they doing? I don't understand. I can't hear it. So, you know, there are all these crazy things that just practically speaking, as a trained composer, as somebody who works with an orchestra a lot, you get to understand this instrument sits best here. Not that you can't have that up there, but you have it with a different accompaniment. You wouldn't put a bass all the way up, almost over the finger, you know, way down on the fingerboard, close to the bridge. It's way, way up there and it's really soft. You're not going to have six horn Strauss Wagnerian figure. So there are a lot of practical things that go into making everything fit. And you just have to think about the sound as an instrument. So you apply the techniques of good orchestration and treat the electronic instruments the same as you do the traditional instruments. The other trick to that is, okay, like I have all this stuff here and I've got it on my computer and I've got all these crazy sounds. And then it's a matter of just narrowing those sounds because you have 
you know, you can go crazy with those sounds and they can all overshadow an orchestra. Turn it up and you're in the wrong frequency and forget it. So it's a matter of no, of kind of narrowing your palette, your sound palette electronically, and then knowing how that palette fits sonically with different sections of uh, the orchestra. It's just like paint. You just have to think of it like just putting paint on a canvas. So how do you take those unique electronic sounds that you create for your works and get them in the hands of the orchestras who perform it? Oh, it's very, and here's where my composing, excuse me, my conducting comes in. Because I know that when you go to any hall in the country, like if they have to add any kind of electronic element, everybody freaks out. So you have to make it foolproof because the conductor then is a nervous wreck because they don't like to work with electronics. So you just have to make it easy in a way when a conductor comes across your music and they're like, oh my God, electronics. You're like, nope, I'm going to give you an MP3 file or I'm going to give you a CD player, whatever those techs want, you can have. And you just put it in and you press, as soon as the downbeat happens, the guy presses play. And if you are slight, if you are even close to the metronome markings that I have, I have written it so it is foolproof. They press play on the downbeat. And if he goes along, the electronics come in or somebody, or if the electronics start first, then the conductor knows when there's notation in the score that is very clear. So if they get a little ahead, they know how to do that. I give them a file for them to practice with so they know what the orchestra sounds like, how it fits like. I full proof it. And so you just have to make it so it's, easy and then you have to make it so that it sounds good in the hall and what do i mean by that a lot of halls are really booming so and i'm being very general here but you just have to take this into account so a hall really like in usually a big hall with electronics the bass likes to boom so you can't give them a file that has a lot like a boosted bass and then also you have to make it that somebody some idiot can't turn it up accidentally and blow everybody out of the water. So you just make sure that they set it on like three, right? The tech guy, and then just press play when the conductor points at you and it's fine. Now, I know that you don't care about this, but I hope your listeners do. There are two schools of thought when orchestrating. You can just say, okay, I want the violins loud here and I want the flutes loud. And I want the brass, like everyone's forte, right? Everybody's loud. Well, loud to a trumpet player is different than loud to a flute player is different than loud to the violin section, right? So what does that mean? So that means it's up to the conductor to balance and make sure whatever he or she wants to hear, they can hear it. Or you can do the Pierre Boulez way, which is do not leave it to chance. The trumpet may be um, mezzo forte meno, right? With maybe just a little less. The flute is written in a register that will pop and the strings are maybe divisi so that the sound doesn't blow everybody else out of the water. If you've got 20, you know, if you have 10 desks of first on the stage. 
So then there's that. And I personally prescribe to that. You know, that's just another level of um, understanding how the medium works and then throw electronics on top of that. And then you have to balance it accordingly. Great. Well, pivoting from your compositional craft for a moment, when I think about some of the people who listen to this podcast, they're dipping their toe into the world of this orchestral music that you've been describing. Do you have any advice on how someone might begin to enter into the repertoire and this type of listening? Look, I think the best thing you can do is listen to music on Spotify. My first piece, what I suggest to anybody who's coming in and this is their first time, I suggest coming through the 20th and 21st century via minimalism, Short Ride and a Fast Machine by John Adams, Steve Reich, or music for 21 instruments, whatever that piece is, but come in from that experience. Or if you wanted to, the last season of The Leftovers HBO show, season three, there were three seasons, season three, spectacular. Not just because of the show itself, which I loved, but the music that they chose was all of Tra La Traviata, all of it. So the first piece that they had playing, right? The first um, episode of season three was the Brandisi, the drinking song. Dun, da, 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 right? And I was like, oh, that's cool. Great, I know that. And then the piece right after that was the next piece in the opera. And I thought, that's interesting. And then as they moved through the show, what was happening in the, in the show was actually mimicked in, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but it was mimicked in La Traviata. So when there was a daughter-father conflict, like the second act duet, and they didn't just play two minutes of it, they played the entire thing. The Shana, the Tempo de Taco, the shirt, like everything. And I'm listening to this. And I'm literally screaming at the TV. Oh my God, they played the Tempo de Taco. I can't believe they played the whole duet. It was like 20 minutes. It's huge. And my husband's like, oh my, you need to shut up. Like I can't take it anymore. I can't watch the show with you anymore. But it was fascinating because the whole opera played out the entire thing underneath this whole show. It was breathtaking. So if you want to go and listen to opera, do it through that show. It is unbelievable the way they do it. Your love of opera definitely showing through with that recommendation. Uh, it sounds fascinating that they would tailor the show, the storytelling to La Traviata, which predates it by uh, more than 100 years. With that recommendation in mind, I'd love to turn for this last question to have you share what's coming next. Do you have some new music or new offerings that you'd like to make our audience aware of? Oh, sure. Um, right now, I'm just finishing up um, a COVID-friendly orchestra piece. COVID-friendly meaning something that is has limited forces. They can't hire as many strings because they can't fit them on the stage. Everybody just has to be, just practically speaking, six feet apart. I mean, you can't have all that brass with all the spit and everything because that's dangerous. I just wrote a very happy um, Christmas, kind of a modern fun piece for smaller uh, orchestra that's just finished. 
and then I'm just um, uh, finished a, a film called Ivory Wave by an art house uh, horror director. And um, it's gonna be for string quartet and electronics. And um, that will be performed live in at uh, film festivals once everything opens up. So probably uh, summer and fall, but that is going to be uh, coming out hopefully in uh, the beginning of the year. We're going into the studio um, in a couple weeks for that. And then I'm gonna, and then uh, on top of that, then I'm going to put out my first album, which I've never, classical album, which I've never done. I've written a lot of electronic music, but I've never done like a whole classical album. So the quartet will be on it. And I have a, and I have a uh, piano, tr uh, piano quartet and um, some solo uh, clarinet and um, violin and, you know, just some different chamber pieces all together. So I'm hoping that will be out um, in about a year. Sounds like you have some great projects in the offing. We'll look forward to sharing them with this audience as soon as they're available. Perhaps as you're ready to release those publicly, you can come back on the show and share a little bit more in detail about some of your music. With that, I'd like to thank Liana Premiani for being my guest today. Liana, thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts about music, about your composition, and we'll look forward to hearing more of your music in the year ahead. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your thoughtful and inquisitive questions. And thanks for caring. Boy, us composers, we really appreciate it. So thank you. Bye, everybody. And thank you, listeners, for joining me on this edition of the Anachronism Podcast, where we've spoken to composer and conductor Liana Premiani. We'll be hearing more of her music uh, in future months. And until then, uh, stay tuned for upcoming episodes. And uh, as always, I welcome your feedback. Help me create a more compelling podcast for you. Uh, send me some topics or thoughts about things you want to hear more of, and I'll do my best to bring you thought-provoking and engaging discussion and contemplations on the nature of listening carefully and expanding our musical experience. Till then, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, find me on Facebook and Twitter. Drop me a line at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. Take care. <laughs>